Turn with me, please, to uh, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I sort of want to, if I may, continue on from last week and call it God forbid part 2 because I want to take you through as many as I can tonight, briefly and quickly. We'll see how we how we get on, because I'm just going to speak from memory. I have a few scriptures jotted down, and I just want to speak from my own well to you tonight. And there are 10 God forbids in the book of Romans. Okay, there are 10 of them. And there are three uh, God forbids in Romans chapter 3. So we want to look at those at least tonight. And we want to show you exactly the strength of uh, this term or these words that the apostle has used. If you remember last week, we looked at uh, Luke chapter 20, um, verse 16, how uh, the Lord gave the parable of the husbandmen being left the vineyard. We looked at the vineyard. We looked at the separation of the northern and southern kingdoms, the northern kingdom going into uh, captivity, then into dispersion, uh, heading, traveling westward, becoming Gentilized. In other words, they lost their identity, uh, become known as lost ten tribes, or the lost house of Israel. Southern kingdom was in Judah, and that's where we get the name Jew from. And so then we looked at how um, the the Lord gave us these uh, parables about him coming back and sending. He was sending the prophets, and they rejected them. They rejected him. And then you remember the, the fig tree and the fig tree being cursed. Remember we looked at that last week. The fig tree representing Jewry, or J-E-W-R-Y. And I spell it out because some people think uh, it's jury as in a jury and a judge, you know. J-E-W-R-Y or, or the teachings of jury. And so whenever we're, whenever we're looking at this, we want to try and continue on because what happens is Jesus dies for our sins and for our redemption. He goes to the grave, as we know, he, is, he, he is, uh, uh, arises on the third day, he ascends into heaven, he's glorified, seated at the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of God, he's our great high priest. And he's returning. It's a soon coming king. And the Lord said, you know, uh, in Luke 20, verse 16, he shall come and destroy these husbandmen and he shall give the vineyard to others. They, when they heard it, they said, God forbid. Remember the Pharisees and the scribes, they were going, God forbid. And it was a real, it's, it's an emphatic sort of a, a voice. It's, a, it's, it's emotional. And the way it's put on, it's emphatic. And it's emotional. So when, when you read this, God forbid, it's exactly the same tones that we're looking at tonight. Because we're going to look then at the Christian life as well, God willing. And we'll talk about law and grace here. We want you to see a difference there. For example, when the Lord says that other men will be, or others will be given it, and then we looked at to where the Lord said in Matthew's account, this, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Then we started looking into the New Testament and showing you how 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how all our fathers were baptized under Moses, passed uh, under the cloud and through the sea. And how would they know unless there were Israelites there or there were Jewish synagogues in different places? And Paul usually went to there first to preach. And at their rejection, he went on further afield, then out into the streets and so on. So you'll find that when we read Gentiles, it can be a little bit... um, well, it's a little bit unfortunate at times that the word is only used to cover so many people. Gentiles is used for non-Jewish people. The goyim or the goy is the name of it. 
and it's the non-Jewish people, or it could be uh, gentilized Israelites, those who have lost their identity. It's known as Greeks, or it can be heathen as well. So it covers a wide range, and to me it's better if we can single them out and show you exactly what it means. But they've just put it all in all in the one big lump, if you want, uh, to cover with that one word, okay? So what we're doing is we're looking, and remember, when we're talking about Gentiles, we're talking about all of those people. Of course we are. But we're also focusing in on the kernel of it, of this other nation that it would be reached, uh, and the other house that it was lost as well, okay? So Romans chapter 3, and let's just read um, from verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For that if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Here it is, first one in chapter three. God forbid. Now it's emotional and it's emphatic. God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our righteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. Here's the second one. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? Now let's stop there and pause for a moment. Let me give you a brief uh, little nugget of what is being said here. The apostle is looking here to, the to, again, this is written to the Romans, the church at, Ro- uh, at Rome, and the, the, the early church there at Rome, that is. And, and as he's writing this, there are those who have come from a Jewish extraction, i.e. background as well, and he's saying... Will circumcision from Israel of old, does circumcision avail? Has it been of any use at all? And when we look through the, the Old Testament, we have to say yes, and Paul's saying yes, it was. For it marked them out as people of God. It marked them out as God's elect, as God's chosen. And so when he talks about unto you, he says about, or unto them has the oracles of God been given. Remember, Judah had what was known as the, the birthright, or sorry, the, the scepter. Due to the southern kingdom was given the scepter of God, knowing that the king would come from Judah, that is, from the line of David, the house and lineage of David, that Christ would come from the line of, uh, of David. And, and again, going back to last week, that's why, remember, last week we looked at how when the kingdoms were separated, there were two um, kingdoms there were two sons remember the two sons one was uh, the prodigal son away uh, uh, talking about in the parables and the nation that was scattered and yet the Judah i.e. Jews stayed behind and the real kingly line was not in Samaria under uh, Jeroboam but under Rehoboam and under his line because that was Solomon, David, Solomon, Rehoboam and so on and of course they fell into sin as well but here when we look at this He's saying, only he was given the oracles of God, the word of God, and you had the scepter, the northern kingdom had the birthright. Joseph, the name of the northern kingdom, they had the birthright. So the birthright belonged to 
with Joseph for the northern kingdom. So it had to be found to bring birthright and scepter together. Now stay with me here. Look at this. Look at verse 3. For what if some did not believe, shall their belief make the faith of God without effect? What Paul is saying here is, look, he says circumcision up until the new covenant was good and profitable, marked men out as God's own. After this comes circumcision of the heart, the spirit. He says, so it's not profitable anymore. And hence, if you go into the book of Acts, you'll read of how uh, the early converts from Jewry would have actually been saying, you know, we we have to get uh, these men up in Antioch who have come to saving faith, these Gentiles, we're going to have to get them to be circumcised. And there was a row about that because we're going back into the works of the law rather than into grace. And this is where we now look at Paul says, uh, as I said, it's emotional. Emotionally from his, that's the idea is that he gives us an emotional charge here. And it's emphatic and he goes, God forbid that we do that. So people tend to think that when we look at law or we look at grace, they are both uh, one against the other and law and even faith are one against the other. But they're not. The opposite of law is not grace. I'll I'll give you an example in a moment. The opposite of law is not grace, it's lawlessness. There's a big difference. Big difference. Now, you know, let me give you an example. I was looking at a news bulletin, and there's riots at the minute in Baltimore in the United States. And it reminds you of something you'd see in Belfast. You know, they're armored cars flying and the police with shields out. And it's mostly, it's the African-American community are rising up about certain shootings that's happened there and, and all this sort of stuff. Anyhow, there's rats at the moment in Baltimore. Now the law says, here's the law, and this is the way we abide by the law. And so the law is for the good of all of that society. But when the law is broken, if someone was to get caught and say they were to be let off with a caution, that would show grace to them because they deserved to be punished according to that law. But they get off free. But at the minute, there's riots. So does that mean then, because they get off free, does that give everyone license now to riot? They're smashing the shopping centers and burning and looting and doing all sorts of stuff. They're, they're smashing police cars up and, and all sorts are going on at the minute. Does that mean then that that's grace? Because one or two may get off a, a charge that they were, the law was gracious to them. I'm just giving an example. It was gracious to them. They deserved to be charged, but they got off. So they all do it then. So then we must be able to do what we like because there's grace here. That's lawlessness. That's not grace. So what they're doing is they are deliberately destroying things. Uh, they are just deliberately breaking the law. And if they have a mindset, well, we'll get off with it. That's not grace. Do you get what I'm saying on this? So whenever you and I are saved, we're saved by grace through faith. And what Paul is saying is here, look, the, the people who teach against any law of God, it's known as antinomianism, okay, which means it's lawlessness, really. It's not grace. And today you have what's known as even what, what people term as hyper-grace teaching. And it gives people an idea where they can live however they like. Grace covers it. 
And hence you have now the Christian church starting to go into the world, acting like the world, being like the world, holding, uh, going to their to the, the places the world go to, doing the things that the world does, acting like the world, no different from the world, because, you see, the idea is grace covers it all. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in grace, fully sovereign grace. So don't get me wrong. So we have to marry this up. What do we do with this? Because Paul now comes and he's saying, look, you're talking about circumcision of the flesh, and you're talking about works here. And that doesn't save you. No works can save you. You're saved by grace through faith. So justification by faith alone as well is another one that we're justified in the sight of God because we have faith in Christ who died for us and kept the law we couldn't keep, lived the life we couldn't live, and he bore our sin on his own body on the tree and took it away from us. Gave us his righteousness. So now we stand before the Father righteous and justified in the sight or just as if we'd never sinned. We believe that with all of our hearts. But does that mean then that we can go out and live how we like? Does that mean that I can go out and, uh, and, and start getting drunk and become a drunkard and say grace covers it? Does that mean I can go out and have a, the foulest of mouth and, and blaspheme because grace covers it? Or you or any of us? The answer is absolutely not. So what happens is, is the law becomes a precept in our hearts and that pre, those precepts in our hearts, we live them out because we love him. Because we realize what he's done for us. So what Paul is saying here is, look, because you don't believe, does that mean our faith has made nothing and God has made unrighteous? He says, God forbid. When we read here in verse 5, look at verse 5. But if our righteousness commend the righteous if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God what shall we say is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance I speak as a man God forbid for then how shall God judge the world the there are some in Christian circles and now they're 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 few but they're vehemently opposed to Paul's writings and believe Paul was a set-up spy. Would you believe that? Now, we don't believe that. We do not believe that. People believe that Paul was a, uh, was a, 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 a Jewish plant in the church. These are Christians believe this. Because they're saying that Paul preached grace and revelation of Christ and and he showed us, but you know, here we're, here Paul is, because Paul is saying, they're saying that Paul is speaking of justification by faith apart from works. And the Jesuit order actually took these writings like this and started looking at this and saying, well, you know, there's so much we need to do to work. Indulgences. And the Jesuit orders tried to uh, sort of uh, take Paul apart and see where Paul was coming from as well on this. And different men down through the years have tried to do that. The very apostles themselves uh, rejected Paul at the start. Paul says he's one born out of due time, even in his own epistles. And it means actually, uh, and you can pardon the term, but the strength of the word is this. When Paul really says that I am, uh, um, 
I'm, an, I'm like an afterbirth, that's what he says. That's the, that's the term of it, the strength of it. That's what they're calling me. Or I am like a child who didn't go full term. A miscarriage. That's the strength when Paul says, I, I, I am as one born out of due time. That's what they say about me, he's saying. In other words, you weren't timely born. You weren't an apostle of the Lamb. But Paul is an apostle of the risen, of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. So that's why Paul fought so much along the fight for the truth of the revelation of the Scripture. The revelation of the Lord's table is given to us by Paul. The Lord tells us about breaking, uh, the Gospels tell us about the Lord breaking bread, and the Lord tells us, uh, for we are to do it in remembrance of him and so on. But it's Paul who brings us into the Corinthian letter. It's Paul who says, uh, this is what happens around the Lord's table. It's Paul who gives us the, the ability to know the gifts of the Spirit. It's Paul who gives us the teachings on that. So the revelation of Paul, it's Paul who gives us a revelation in a deeper way of, of the of the predestined elect choice of God as well. It's Paul that opens all of this out. And when you come to James, Martin Luther actually said, and I disagree with Martin Luther for who I am against Martin Luther, but at the same time, uh, Martin Luther says that uh, James' epistle was an epistle of straw. Because when you're coming out of the Church of Rome, he was trying to do everything he could to show against works that he was completely so much in faith. He looked at James saying that faith without works is dead, and he said, it's an epistle of straw. James's epistle is a fantastic letter. It's a magnificent letter. So you can see how they even, down through the years, there's a, bit, a, there's a controversy. Antinomianism is when there's no law adhered to at all. It's lawlessness, not grace. So when he says, God forbid, he's saying, emphatically and emotionally. Look, there's no unrighteousness for God. In fact, it comes further down that Paul starts to look at it and he says, look, take it like this. You're saying, and I'm putting it in modern terms for you. I'm putting it in uh, simple terms. They were actually saying, so are you saying, Paul, if we're saved by faith and we need do nothing? If you're saying what we're saved by faith and we can live however we like, and sure, if we become the lowest of the low of sinners, if we claim Christ as our own and we live how we like, and we become fornicators and idolaters, and but sure, will that not show even greater glory for God because he's going to save us anyhow? <laughs> this, is the, uh, this is the actual argument they're trying to bring forth here. So, so will our unrighteousness not show that God is even more righteous, Paul? Paul's actually arguing, arguing here as if someone's arguing with him in the letter. That's what he's doing. And he's explaining this and he's saying, no, you can't live unrighteously just because you say it's going to glorify God's righteousness. Because those who love the Lord, those who are saved by sovereign grace, those who have the right thinking about God with the word abiding in them, says they'll live accordingly to the word and they'll love the Lord and they'll live for him. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. And so he's going, God forbid. So now you know when you're reading it, that's what he's saying. Well, well, well our circumcision of the flesh, so he says, God forbid at one time, but now it's of the spirit. It's not of any works that we can do. But it's not to live a life because of grace sinning, because we'll carry that on in a moment. So let's just look, read on down through the chapter. Verse 7. 
For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported and of some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Here Paul is saying, you know, you're saying I'm a sinner, but sure if you think that you can sin to glorify God, the more you sin, God's glory is greater because he's able to lift you. You see, it was the Russian monk Rasputin and he was off the Romanov family. Bonnie M made him very popular with her song, Ra Ra Rasputin, Russia's greatest love machine. And this is who they're speaking of. Do you know why they wrote that book? Because Rasputin was so degenerate. Rasputin was a rascal. <laughs> Rasputin was such a sinner, he actually used to teach this we can sin to the depravity because God's grace will cover it and that will glorify him and show his might. So he was filthy in all of his ways and he was depraved in all his ways and he was sinful in all his ways and he taught others to do so. And Paul's saying here, now you're saying I'm a sinner. Am I glorifying God? But yet you'll call me one. So he's saying here, God forbid. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no ways. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. So you're no better, he says, than these people who are Gentiles. Then he starts to use the scripture. Remember I said Paul's scriptures weren't the, old, the New Testament, it was the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. Paul is actually living it out and writing the New Testament. And remember, you only had the Old Testament. You had Moses, the law, and the prophets. So he starts looking back into the Old Testament. Again, there had to be someone here of this Israelite extraction to be able to understand what he's saying. So he starts taking out from different Psalms and from Isaiah. Let's have a look at it just briefly. First name, what shall he say? And are they better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jew and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Paul takes that from Psalm 14 and 1. And it's also in Psalm 56 and 1. There's none righteous, he says, no, not one. And, and he's saying, it's written. Where's it written, Paul? It's written in the Psalms. Then let's go on to the next verse. There is none that understandeth, none that seeketh after God. Same for Psalm 14. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. That there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Ian Paisley called uh, a priest on this one time, he called it, I think it was, I can't remember, I'll have to count them now, uh, four Roman nuns. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good and seek after God. And from the book of Romans, that's what he called it. There's a three Roman ones. I can't, we'll have to count them now. I forget how many there are. And there's none that understand, none seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become a prophet. There's none 
that doeth good. No, not one. Here we have uh, uh, all Psalm 14. Then he changes again. He says, their throat is an open sepulcher. You'll find that in Psalm 140, verse 3. Uh, and their tongue, uh, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. That's, sorry, that's Psalm 5 and 9 and Psalm 140 and verse 3. You can look those two up. And he takes them and he says, here's it written here. Look what the word says here. And what is it? It's all Old Testament scriptures. Do you know what he's doing? He's showing them who they are outside of faith in Christ. And whenever... You, know, you and I don't know what speed limit it is sometimes if we're going down a road unless we see a sign. You might be doing 40 and a 30 or whatever. And when you see it, you realize, oh, look at the dash. I'm too fast. Slow down. And Paul's saying the same. He says, look, look what it says about everybody. Look what it says about us and them and whoever else, all of us under the sin. So then he goes on again, he says in verse 13, their throat, oh, sorry, verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's Psalm 10 and verse 7. Then he takes Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 59 and verse 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood, Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have they not known. Here he takes Isaiah, then the prophet. And remember when the risen Lord met the two um, uh, who were disgruntled and, and disillusioned after he had died, uh, and he met, the, he met the two of them, and he showed himself through the Scriptures. And it says, in beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them the things concerning the scriptures and the things concerning himself. And here Paul is saying, now let us expound the scriptures and the things concerning ourselves. So he starts to, here's uh, the Psalms, Isaiah the prophet, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes, and that's Psalm 36 and verse 1. So if you jot those down, you can read them, you go home, it'll take us forever just to go through them. You wouldn't have time. You'd be at it for months. But whenever he says in verse 4, God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. Do you know where he takes that from? Psalm 116 and verse 11. And he's saying, you know, are we saying that God's lying? Because Are we going to call God unrighteous? Or what are we going to say about him? Is it because we don't like it? Is it because we... We, we think he's unjust in his own ways and his own choice and his, his own election and what he determines. Are we going to say he's unjust? Who are we to do that? Who are we to do that? Verse 19. Now we know that things that what things soever the law saith to them, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Now you're told today in many pulpits or even in, I don't really watch it to be honest, I just can't watch it anymore. A lot of the Christian TV channels, I prefer to watch the news. 
And I would, that's honestly, I prefer to watch the news. And these, ch- these channels, uh, not all of it, but a, good, a vast majority of it, it's all about having a good day and how well you can be and how prosperous you can be. Uh, and it's all about you sow into my ministry and God's going to give you a mansion and a big Cadillac and, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And I would say, well, go and preach that in India, would you? Go and preach that down in the South Americas. Go and preach that in China. I'm tired of hearing it. Now, God prospers. He prospered me spiritually. Now, I'm not by any means rich. Right? I'm nowhere near it. But I'm better than what I was. And he looks after me and meets my need. I'm not saying he can't prosper people like that. But what I'm saying is, here, the apostle is showing us the reality of man. And who we are, you don't see it anymore. And neither do people want to preach it because it's not politically correct. You know, it's all now, you know, I want to tell you how much he loves you. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's every single time. What about judgment to come? What about righteous living? What about sanctification? And so Paul is saying, look, you know what this is showing us? All this world. Under the law, Israel came under the law. You know what it done? It brought the guilt on the world. Here's God's standard. Israel, you be a light to lighten the nations. You show them the glory of God. They failed. They couldn't keep it. So where do you lie? Do you know what I mean? This is, this is what he's saying here. And every mouth will be stopped. And then he says, it shows us who we are. And man wants to believe that he's good enough. And churches say, if you come and we'll confirm you in the our denomination, well, you know, you, you, or you, you, you get sprinkled as a baby, well, you know, that, that's you on your way. You're into the covenant. Are you? Are you? The scriptures tell us that a believer must be regenerated first by the Holy Ghost. And put their full trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross. And then after that, they're filled with the Spirit and then they have a life to walk out with Christ, whether it be five minutes or 50 years. And we'll fail and we fall, but grace covers us. But it's not living in an open course of sin. It's not habitual sin. It's living for God And God's grace carrying us through. Shall we say God's unrighteous because of what he does? God forbid. So this gospel is the gospel that was going out from, remember last week when I said about the the, the Lord says about the fig tree, he was digging around it and dunging it. He says, Lord, leave it, let it alone this year also. Three and a half years have come, or three years have come, found nothing. And he found nothing, no national fruit, but there were I suppose there were gleanings of grapes, as it were, on it, or figs, as it were, at the time. And here he, he, he says, um, he, he digs up the fig, the, the fig tree because they rejected him who was jury. The gospel goes to the, to the nation that was scattered 750 years ago, and everybody hears the word. They go looking for it, but they're preaching in synagogues, it? they're preaching out in the street the next, they're preaching all over the place, and people are getting saved, trusting the Savior. So, 
Every man becomes guilty before God. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. A child doesn't know it's doing wrong until it's taught. A child doesn't know how wrong it is until it's shown it. I was just last week visiting someone unsaved. They had one child out in a car with the window down. And they had another child at the doorstep at my feet as I was leaving their house. One child swore over at the wee one in the car. A real vulgar swear word. And my jaw dropped. And of course, the pastors are and they go, oh, you know, the parents. And I go, but see, that child didn't know how wrong that was. And the daddy goes, no, that's not nice. You stop that. And the mommy went, oh, dear, dear, and that sort of stuff. And I went, hey, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> I did. And they looked at me and I went, what do you think you're doing talking like that? That's ridiculous, you talking like that. The wee one cursed it back out on me. <laughs> See what I mean? And if it's, they're there, they're there. And if we're always going to people and it's always, they're there, they're there, you know, you'll be all right as you are. You're okay as you are. Live how you like, as long as you keep coming to church. sort of church is it? There's mega churches in the States with 40,000 people in attendance on a Sunday. Football stadiums converted. And all they're told every week is, and they lift it up like this, I can't remember the whole rhetoric. This is my book, this is the book, and I believe this book, and I am what this book says I am. Well, see, if you believe you are what that book says you are, you want to read it, because it tells you. Because next thing it is, oh, you're so blessed, and you're going you're gonna to reap a great reward, and herein is your blessed destiny, and, and, and they read from some mongrelized version of the Word of God. And I'm going, you, well, you want to read it, because this book tells me that, that everyone is a sinner, Outside of Christ. And everyone tells me that, or the, this book tells me that there's a, a, a righteous standard of living. It does tell me I can do all things through Christ. It does tell me that I'm greatly loved and deeply loved and greatly blessed and whatever else the rhetoric is. It tells me that. But it also tells me that I have a, a savior, yes, but I also have a king who rules over my life. A lord of my life. And Paul's saying here, are you telling me you think you can live how you like? Or are you telling me that should we not sin even more to be able to give God glory and say, look what you saved me from? He says, God forbid. God forbid it. Because now it's, you know, Church, live how you like. Remember our pastor used to preach 
and he used to not miss and hit the wall. And I'll tell you, Barry Natty, he came to your face and told you what he thought. <laughs> just say, just say, he had told you near from the pulpit, never made your face. He wouldn't have missed and hit the wall. And sometimes you're like, ah, that old lad, yeah. But I'll tell you something, he taught you to live for the Lord. He taught you to be faithful to the house of God. He used to say from the pulpit, listen, I'll see you tonight, 6.45. This is the Lord's day. Make sure you're here. And then he used to say, Pastor, what if, what if I was to break my leg, he says, and you've always wanted to hop in on You break your legs, he says, crawl, you know, you'll be here. This is the Lord's day. So the problem is I feel and I see with my own eyes is that the church has been degenerating and becoming so like the world it no longer is the salt, it no longer is the light. Uh, Well, not no longer, but it's diminished from being that. There are a lot of good people who really want to serve God. But Christians in general have become so um, centralized. Gospels become man-centered, where it's all about man and it's no longer about him. What can you do for me, Lord? It was always, Lord, I want to serve you. We're your servants. Let's just read on here. Verse 22. Sorry, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, by, which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through the faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but of the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. He, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Here's the third one of Romans 3. God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Paul was saying here, look, the uncircumcised, if they come to faith, they'll get saved. The exact same way. The, uh, the circumcised will get saved through faith. 
So what he's saying is the circumcision of the heart, no longer of the flesh, and it's not of works, it's by sovereign grace that we're saved. But then he's saying, so does that mean that we can live how we like and then God's law becomes of none effect? Do we make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yeah, he says, we establish the law. In other words, the law that is then written in our hearts, that law is... uh, become those precepts that we live for Christ because it's in our heart. I give this example to you as once before. If you were to have the laws of your house upon a f- your fridge stuck with a fridge magnet and you brought your children in, read them laws. Read that law there. Yes, okay. You know, thou shalt make sure when you come in, you take your shoes off if they're dirty and all this sort of stuff. Thou shalt make sure you do your bedroom, me, your homework before. Yes, 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 okay. Dad, I've got it. Now, if you memorize it, I've got it. Read it again, I've got it. If you memorize it, yes, and you make sure it's imprinted in them. You go, right, if you memorize it, yes. And as soon as they walk away, it's in their mind. But see, shortly, they're distracted. They forget all about it. They're breaking the law. But if those children are reared up by your love and nurture, this is what we do. This is how it's done. You'll find that that through the love of it, they'll remember it. It'll be inscribed in their little hearts and their minds. This is what we do in our house. This is how we conduct ourselves in our house. For example, our girls, I mean, they're like all our kids. They have their ups and their downs and have their moments, especially now that they're hitting around the teen years. But they know what they can get away with in my home and what they can't. They'll know where they stand and where they don't. But they know they're deeply loved. And I'd do anything for them. Their mommy would do anything for them. They know that they're protected. They know we're for them and not against them. And so with the respect and reverence to us, they will respect us in return. So hence Paul is saying, we don't make void the law. Grace isn't the opposite of law. Lawlessness is. We don't make void the law. We establish it. We live it out. We live it in our lives. Turn to Romans chapter 6, please. I'm just watching the clock. Romans chapter 6. And there's two in Romans chapter 6. We'll maybe see how we get on with, with these two and then we'll just finish that. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, what we have to do is reverse back to chapter 5 to understand what Paul is saying here, okay? Chapter 5. Let your eye run back then. Um to verse 19, just for time's sake. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, do you see the word here for sinners? Do you know in the New Testament there are some uh, nine different Greek words for the words for different, for sin? And here the idea of it is, is uh, where it says, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. The, 
The word here is parakuo, for disobedience. Parakuo. Let me just break it down for you. The word para is where you get paraclete for the Holy Spirit, one called alongside, or a parable. You throw a, uh, the story down alongside something to make a comparison with. So we looked at that with parables last week. And here, the disobedience was, is the word to come alongside, para. Akuo is the second part of this word. And the word akuo means to listen and to hear. To listen and to hear. And when they're put together, it makes up the word parakuo. And you know what it means? It's why it's for disobedience. It means for by one man not listening or failing to listen when God was speaking. That's what it means. He disobeyed what God had said. And we're speaking of Adam here. So when God came in the cool of the day to speak to Adam of all the trees of the garden, I may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, you know, thou shalt not eat thereof in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam could hear, but he wasn't listening. And he did the opposite of the law of God in the garden. And sin came. Death came. And he fell. So parakuo means by one man's disobedience, Adam was failing to listen when God was speaking. So there's sin for you, failing to listen when God is speaking. So for, the, for, the, uh, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, many shall many be made righteous. The word here for obedience is the word hupakuo. And the word hupo gives the idea to come under and lift up. Or to come underneath. Okay, gives the idea. You know, whenever you're 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 putting a supporting beam in between a wall, and you put the beam along underneath to hold it up. So the word here, hoop, a cool, it gives the idea where Christ came under the word of the Father, listened to the word of His Father, and upheld the law and the word of His Father, and because He did that, many shall be made righteous. See the difference here. And the Lord Jesus is known as the second or the last Adam. So, when we're there, look at what it says now in verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Notice that. The law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, when this happened, it, it increased. This offense got greater. This offense became, uh, where, or it came to the point where God ended up in Noah's day sending the flood. And it increased, it abounded. But notice this. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In all of God's wrath and in all of God's judgment upon a sinless world, or sinful world, God always had grace. We're told that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The word grace is the word Cain. It comes from the root word Cain. It's Canaan, and it means one bowing down or stooping down in kindness to an inferior. And God bowed down, stooped down in kindness to Noah and says, Noah, I'm going to, all this flesh is going to be destroyed in front of me because of their wickedness, he says now. And God would be just in doing that. But see, in grace, build an ark. Build an ark. 
And then, of course, grace abounded. The word here, abound, is the word to abound, then abound again, and they abound some more. Or as someone says, it means to superabound. And the idea is now in Christ, where you and I feel trying to walk before the Lord, as it were, according to his word and living a sanctified life. We are human. We feel. None of us are perfect. We feel. But where sin has caused us to feel, grace abounds right over it. So grace is always ahead of you. So Paul has given us the argument now, since this is happening, he looks at sin and death here in the next verse, 24, that sin hath reigned unto death. The word reigned there is the word basilio, and it gives the idea of a monarch ruling and reigning over someone. It personifies sin and death here, and it's saying it's as though this figure of death has reigned over man and Adam. Follows you all the days of your life. That sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness. So now when you're in Christ, grace becomes the monarch who rules over you. And death may turn around sometimes and say, oh, you've failed and you've fallen and you're, you're no good and you'll never be forgiven. But your real monarch steps in called grace that's abounded over it. And that's how we enter the kingdom through grace, saved by grace alone. Through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. No, so since that, so now we're looking at this. Paul's saying, okay, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Death and sin was over you like a monarch, but now you're under new management. You've got a great monarch, uh, and it's grace who abounds over all of it through our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done in his righteousness. And everyone's going, praise the Lord, amen, hallelujah. And we do, we do, we rejoice in that. But look what he says in chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's nearly going back to the old argument again. So does this mean we can keep on sinning? Does this mean that we can go and be like the world? Here's the emphatic, God forbid, verse 2. God forbid, he says. And the word God forbid, as I said, the cry, it means never let it be so even said or spoken of. Never let this happen. God forbid, he says. How shall we be dead to sin? How we shall we that are dead to sin, rather, live any longer therein? In other words, he said, look, you're living in the life of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit in you. We have the Word of God. And how could you live like that, knowing that you have the Holy Ghost in you? We're dead to that. That's dead to us, and we're living on the Christ now. And the true believer is uncomfortable. Would, is there true believers that go into the world and sin and go, yes, there are, yeah. But you know what they find? They find they're so uncomfortable. They find that it's just, it's like a, they're like a square peg in a round hole. They just don't fit anymore. They get nothing from it, and they're, they're, they're just, what am I doing here? And their heart's desires, they yearn back to the place with God. 
So he's saying here, can we continue like this? He says, God forbid. He asks the question, how can we? Verse 3, knowing ye not that so many as us were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him in baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in, notice, newness of life. Just for time's sake, let your eye run down. The verse 13. I'll tell you what, let your, go to uh, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. He says, you know, you, you, you'd overcome this in the spirit and fight against it. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just beautiful? Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. That's tremendous, isn't it? Think of where you were. I mean, again, this, I believe this book is what I am, can do what I can do and all this sort of stuff. Here's what it says, you were dead. But now you're alive. Don't bring it into the realms of death again. Don't live like the world. Don't be like them. Oh, but if we don't be like them, you know, we'll never win them. That's nonsense. This book tells us that people are saved by sanctified saints preaching the word with Holy Ghost boldness. Notice it says, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin hath not dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. The idea here is, you're no longer under a curse, you're set free. You're no longer under a curse that says, you're dead. You're no longer a curse that says you're for judgment, you're under wrath. He says, you're no longer under that. He says, you're under grace. And you're set free from it. So you live in the liberty of that, but you live it for Christ. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. God forbid. Can you see that? Paul is saying every step he's taking, he's saying, here's the grace. Rejoice in it. Live in it. Because if you realize the love of God and the grace of God in you, you'll live right for Christ. But it's not the license to sin. Know you not that to whom you yield your members you yield yourselves, sorry, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, ye shall ye become the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, 
because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when we were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit on the holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, what he's really saying at the end of this chapter. Here is what he's saying. He's saying, look, you used to serve the devil with all your heart. You used to serve idols with all your heart. And I find it strange because, you know, you wouldn't have thought anything to sitting up all night in a club and then going on somewhere at daybreak if you would find someone's house the party the next day in without sleep. But we find it so hard to stay up in an all-night premiere. We used to take our wages and have it away in a night or two with a feed of drink. They'd find it so hard to tie and give on to the Lord's house and work. We used to take our time and thought nothing of of running all over the place and doing our own thing and, and serving the devil with all our members and giving of our time and our energy. And he said, you did all of that with a true, a full heart and you loved it. He says, but now, he says, you were servant to that. You know, young people think because you get saved that you become enslaved. That's the opposite. I used to be in slavery to alcohol and drugs. I'm no longer in slavery to alcohol and drugs. I'm set free. It has no hold on me. And I say that in the grace of God. And you were under the slavery of sin and whatever else it was, but it no longer has it any hold on you. Christ has set you free. So what Paul is saying is, you know what to do? See with the same passion and with the same desire and with the same full heart that you gave to the, to the, 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 the sin of the world and the devil. He says, yield your members then unto God with the same likeness. Serve him with gladness and serve him with all your heart. Then he reminds us at the end of that chapter for the wages of sin is death. But, I preached a sermon one time in here called Big Doors Swinging Small Hinges. We hinge just turns a door, but is a small hinge, but it opens a big door, a massive door. The wages of sin is death. The hinge swings the door open, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's serve the Lord with all we have. Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. God forbid. God bless you tonight.